how should we think the weaponization of sound? And what, if anything, has law got to do with it? Dr. James Parker, director of a research program on law, sound and the international at the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at Melbourne Law School, surveys the privileged landscapes and material techniques of sonic warfare. This lecture was recorded on the 3rd of October 2015 at the Institute of Modern Art, Brisbane. Hi everyone, Liquid Architecture uh, would like to acknowledge the Turbal and Jagera people, the traditional owners of the land on which this event is held tonight, and to pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Hello and welcome to the first night of LA 2015 here in Brisbane. First up, uh, we have a special presentation for you uh, from James Parker from the University of Melbourne uh, on the jurisprudence of sonic welfare. Please help me make him feel very welcome. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, thank you to Joel over there and, and, and Danny and Annabelle um, and to everyone at the IMA for hosting and um, me and everybody else this evening. I'm really humbled um, to be part of this program. I, I honestly, um, I, I kind of, I realize I'm sort of obliged to say that a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually being really sincere because um, it's been, a, it's just been a really huge pleasure for me. I, as I'm gonna say in a minute, I come from a law faculty and, um, and I just don't get to spend um, this kind of time with these kinds of people. And I'm a real fan of many of the people in the program here. And so it's been a real pleasure um, being um, programmed alongside them and also spending time with them and talking to them. So I'm really grateful for that. And I'm going to try and live up to, um, live up to them. So um, before I get into tonight's topic, I thought I'd just um, take a couple of moments to situate um, this topic relative to some of my previous work, and hopefully that will give a little bit of a sense of where I'm coming from and where I'm trying to go. Um, and so the first thing, as I said, is, is that I'm a legal academic, right? I'm a lecturer at Melbourne Law School, and but I'm a bit, a bit of a kind of an unusual legal academic in that my research is about law's various different relations with sound. And this is kind of an odd thing to be in a way because most legal academics are technicists, right? They're into rules and regulations as opposed to, you know, the, the social or philosophical, political, aesthetic or material dimensions of legal thought and practice. And even on the rare occasions that and they're very rare occasions that legal academics are interested in these kinds of things. They're much more likely to focus on questions of language um, or image um, than questions of sound or music and that kind of stuff. So in part, my research, just in kind of in general, is intended as a kind of intervention, if you like, in legal scholarship to say that really sound matters in, in law and in legal practice more than most people tend to think. And that, and that you know, this is not just neutral, this is kind of an ethical failure, actually. It's a failure by lawyers and legal institutions to take responsibility for the complexities of thinking with and about sound. And, and so really, uh, on, on this level, my research kind of results in the imperative to uh, you know, listen, basically, or li maybe listen better. And I realize that that imperative is maybe not that radical to the people in this room, um, but actually to lawyers and legal ad academics, it, it kind of is a little bit, and that's a shame. Um, but uh, having said that, I also don't want to be too, too hard on legal thought and practice in a way because I don't think it's simply a matter of, you know, reaching out 
um, from legal scholarship towards this kind of these more enlightened fields, right, of sound studies or musicology or whatever, you know, and drawing in their on their wisdom um, to enrich legal practice in its, you know, naivety or whatever. I, there's definitely some of that. Um, and in my work, I do draw heavily on the vocabulary of what is, um, and the techniques and the methods of what, as you know, is increasingly being called sound studies. But I also would like to think anyway that my work um, has something worthwhile to say back to the field of sound studies as well, right? That it's, um, that sound studies too hasn't always been as attentive or as rigorous as it might have been when it comes to questions of law. Because um, scholarship on sound, uh, this is a very, broad brushstroke I'm, I'm painting here, but you know, has, hasn't necessarily been as interested in um, legal institutions as it might have been. It's not been interested in the kind of the peculiarities, the real peculiarities of legal doctrine and the practices of judgment. Sound studies tends to imagine law as predominantly textual, predominantly prohibitive, um, rather than lived or generative. And so law gets invoked all the time in sound studies in relation to typically anti-noise legislation, copyright law, freedom of expression, but that's kind of it most of the time anyway. And, and I, I want to say that the relationship between law and sound goes much deeper than that. And one of the things I'm trying to do in my work is to show how. So um, now for the plug, um, in, the, in my book, um, which is coming out later this month, I make an argument really for what I call an acoustic jurisprudence. And I make that argument by means of a study of a single trial, right? A, sort of a, it's basically a case study. The book is a case study. But the, the case study um, takes place in a context where questions of sound and music were unusually central. So the, um, the book is about the trial of a guy called Simon Bikindi. And he was a well-known Rwandan singer and politician, and he was accused by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda of inciting genocide um, with his songs and, and speech. And um, for what it's worth, he was ultimately convicted um, at trial in relation to the speech, but not the songs. And what I do in the book is try to use this case as a way of thinking through some of the, um, the ways in which the practices of legal judgment come into contact with questions of sound in one way or another. So on the one hand, when I, when I um, look and listen to the Bikindi case, I'm interested in what I would call following Jonathan Stern, uh, Law's sonic imagination. Right? So I'm interested basically in how the tribunal thought about Bikindi's songs for the purposes of judgment. How did it imagine music worked when it was supposedly inciting genocide? How did it understand the relationship between music and lyrics? Did it presume that music and the, 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 even the distinction between music and lyrics even works really? Um, what, what does it think the significance of an audio recording is? What does it, what, how does it think about radio? As we know, radio played quite an important role in um, the Rwandan genocide. And how did all of these issues and questions play out at the level of doctrine and rhetoric and evidence, et cetera, at trial? And so um, really the strong version of the claim I'm making in relation to law's sonic imagination is that institutions like the ICTR, legal institutions, are in fact always thinking about sound in one way or another, even when they, they and maybe even especially when they think they're not. Right? And so we, we need to think about how they think about sound. Um, so yeah, I'm interested in law's sonic imagination, but I'm also interested in the courtroom in which Bikindi's trial took place as a soundscape. Um, and I, I, one of the things I do in the book is I try to think through the various different listening practices that life in a courtroom produces and draws upon. And, um, 
you know, what are the consequences, for example, of simultaneous interpretation and ubiquitous headphone wearing in international courts? Um, you know, what, what, what does that do um, to, to, to judicial rhetoric? And what does it mean um, to sing your final statement as Bakindi uh, did at trial? And how is this kind of musical performance similar to and different from other oral performances at trial? Um, you know, why would um, we require that judges pronounce their final judgment, for example? What, what's going on there? And uh, how does this give shape to the judicial soundscape and with what consequences? So that's sort of like a brief overview of the book. And, and, and the reason for explaining that is, is that um, my next project, which I'm going to talk about now, kind of draws on some of this stuff, um, draws on other um, law sound relations and also in quite extreme context. So, so I'm moving on now from the happy topic of genocide to just, just generally war and domination, um, just you know, in general. So, um, so I'm kind of trying to push at some of the legal questions in relation to what Steve Goodman calls sonic warfare. There's a, a small literature has begun to emerge around this topic recently. And so what I'm going to do this afternoon is, is orient my discussion around three main sites in relation to this, um, three soundscapes, if you like. So first, the battlefield, and then the torture chamber, and finally, the city. And obviously, these are not comprehensive of the total field of sonic warfare, but they're, they're three very important sites, and the ones I'm interested in now um, anyway. And then once I've talked about these in general, I'm going to then get um, stuck into some of the more legal questions at the end. So, battlefield, torture chamber, city, jurisprudence. To begin with the battlefield then. So I guess the first thing to say is that, you know, it's not as if Steve Goodman was the first person to notice the link between, no, you know, noise and war. Noise and war have always gone together. This isn't controversial. So, for example, you know, for the ancient Greek philosopher and military strategist Onasander, um, one should always send the army into battle shouting, sometimes on the run, because their appearance and shouts and a clash of arms confound the hearts of the enemy. So that's ancient Greece. For Roman historian, senator, and, and ethnographer Tacitus, and acoustics is really important to military technique as well. So he says, by the rendering of this chant, they not only kindle their courage, but merely by listening to the sound, they can forecast the issue of an approaching engagement, for they either terrify their foes or themselves become frightened, according to the character of the noise they make upon the battlefield. And they regard it not merely as so many voices chanting together, but as a unison of valor. What they particularly aim at is a harshly intermittent roar, and they hold their shields in front of their mouths so that the sound is amplified into a deeper crescendo by the reverberation. So in these two quotations, we get quite a clear picture, actually, of the fact that noise is both a, a sign and a technique of warfare and conflict. As a sign, you know, it's both a symptom of the general chaos and fury of battle, but it's also a warning. Um, Hillel Schwartz talk, talks about uh, noise being advance notice and emblem of mortality. And as a technique of war, um, by contrast, noise is crucial to the production of, on the one hand, you know, the requisite courage in one's own soldiers, right? This kind of the bloodlust for battle. Um, but it's also important to the affective um, experience of dread or terror in the enemy. That's what noise is being used for. But with World War I, I think, noise also becomes something else. With World War I, for the first time, um, 
noise also becomes really a material bodily threat, much more literally a weapon. So it's still a technique of warfare, but it's of an importantly different kind. And J. Martin Daughtry refers to this um, as thanatosonics. Right? So Daughtry actually has a new book that came out earlier on this week, Listening to War, and I would recommend it. I haven't read it yet, but on the basis of all the rest of his work, I, I, I mean, I think, it, I think it's bound to be interesting because Daughtry talks about thanatosonics. So thanatos, as you may know, um, was the Greek god of death. Thanatosonics refers to kind of the latent violence of sound, right? It's like, it's death drive. And this death drive, this violent potentiality has always been there, but with World War I, the thanatosonic becomes particularly unavoidable, right? And, and then continues to be um, in the evolving soundscapes of the 20th century. So with World War I, really what I'm saying is that we get for the first time the birth of um, noise as cap being capable of doing significant physiological and psychological harm, even um, in extreme instances to the point of causing death. But it's not as if this you know, came out of nowhere. So we have evidence um, from at, at least as early as the 16th century of acoustic trauma um, being sustained by firearms. Um, so you know, World War I doesn't entirely innovate, um, but certain features of the practice and new technologies that come around with World War I do um, mark an important threshold. So we get for the first time the combination of vastly more powerful explosives in heavy artillery, um, the, the first use of a magazine and belt-fed weapons using metal cartridges, which are much more sonorous, and the, you know, this kind of the, the, the social organization of trench warfare as well, this kind of this real proximity um, between the sides fighting. So we get, as a result, a really dramatic increase in the volume of war. So um, Hillel Schwartz um, puts it like this. He says, in sonic terms, the great war was the great amplifier. And that's a nice way of putting it. Um, this is a quotation from an ambulance driver um, called John Hargrave. Mechanical death whistled and screamed and crashed over Gallipoli. Mechanical death. And this is, um, the, this is an anonymous letter to a, a laryngologist at Central London Throat and Ear Hospital. The noise, especially during the two hours before the attack, was appalling. It was unceasing, heart-rending, brain-rending. It was noise gone mad out of all bounds, uncontrolled. And frequently, actually, um, the noise was literally deafening too on the front. So, you know, deafness was such an utterly normal physiological symptom of time um, in the trenches that special otological centers had to be opened to deal with this enormous increase in shattered in eardrums. Um, here's uh, a nice quotation to this effect. If you are now to bring home from France all the men with chronic middle ear superation, um, you would have battalions of them all over the country. Just to give you a numerical sense of this, I found some statistics in relation to the French army um, that, that said that um, wartime prevalence of pensionable ear disabilities was around 10 to 20%, right? And almost all of these were uh, due to so-called noise-induced hearing loss as opposed to, them. there was a problem with infection um, due to the, the grime of like, life in the trenches as well, but mostly to do with noise-induced hearing loss. So for the first time with World War I, you know, sound becomes something that can really literally hurt you and on kind of an, an absolutely unprecedented scale. And the physiological symptoms here are, are immediately implicated in relation to psychological symptoms too. So um, the noise of the Western Front was uh, understood as being part of this, a key, a key feature in this kind of newly emergent psychiatric discourse around so-called shell shock. 
So shell shock was never thought of as just a, merely um, you know, a, a nervous or a mental condition caused by you know, the trauma of war. It was always thought to be somatic as well. It was um, you know, the sheer energy of the shell explosions were playing a really important role. And this is, so the, the brute material force um, for, the, for the psychiatrists um, theorizing shell shock was a, was a really key factor. And we get this, um, this comes through very clearly, for example, in the French word um, for shell shock, which is commotion or something like that, but um, you probably pronounce it better than me. But the point is that this word wears its acoustic resonances like really obviously um, compared with shell shock. So yeah, this is both a psychological and a psychiatric problem. Um, and extreme sleep deprivation is a key feature of this too. So um, the English um, poet Robert Graves, for example, who fought at the Battle of the Somme, um, once estimated that he um, was getting around about um, eight um, hours sleep and every 10 nights, and that he thought this was probably normal. Less than one hour a night, and this is to do with the noise of uh, the sheer constancy of this kind of this noise and bombardment. And obviously, this, this kind of noise-induced sleep deprivation would have incredibly severe effects over long periods. It's easy to imagine that. So if all of this sounds like ancient history, you know, the product of this kind of really distant and particularly brutal uh, war, um, it shouldn't because the soundscape of war has changed um, in important ways over the course of the last hundred years, but its volume and its physiological and psychological violence have not really diminished. In fact, if anything, they've just been refined. So the recent history of sonic warfare, in other words, is um, the story of an increasing sophistication of the deployment of noise as a weapon and also the defense, defenses against noise. So for example, um, we've seen recent developments in noise canceling technologies. These ones are made by Bose, um, who obviously are more famous for these, these headphones. Um, but even with this, this development of noise canceling technology, um, hearing damage is still the number one disability of the the so-called war on terror, number one disability. Around 70,000 troops who served in Afghanistan and Iraq are collecting disability for tinnitus currently, uh, another 60,000 for hearing loss. Um, the total annual expense to delivering healthcare services and compensation to veterans for hearing impairment specifically was estimated in 2005 at $1 billion in just that one year. And you know, um, because trench warfare has kind of long since given given way to more kind of guerrilla-style warfare oriented around urban locations, it's not just the military that are being impacted here too. So the soundscape of war is increasingly impacting civilian populations too. In his account of the U.S.'s shock and awe, so-called shock and awe assault on Baghdad in 2003, Daughtry explains that for Iraqi civilians, the experience of the this campaign was overwhelmingly auditory. According to um, one Iraqi woman who he interviewed, um, the sounds of the bombardment were actually more terrifying to her than the, the, um, the threat posed by the rockets themselves. And so th this logic of um, the kind of the using sound to terrorize is taken to its logical extreme with the sonic boom. Um, and sonic booms were, were unleashed deliberately over Nicaragua in the 1980s and over the Gaza Strip in 2005, explicitly with the intention of terrorizing the population below. So we get rid of the bombs now, we just use the, the booms, right? 
According to a journalist who um, was embedded in Palestine at the time, people he interviewed described the effect as being hit by a wall of air that is painful on the ears, sometimes causing nodes, bleeds, and leaving you shaking inside. The force of uh, a sonic boom uh, is so powerful that it can literally shatter windows um, throughout the city. Um, there's evidence of significant increases in the rate of miscarriages in the immediate aftermath of the booms as a result of both the physiological and the psychological impacts of the trauma you know, sustained. So this is a, you know, the miscarriage example is a particularly clear example of the thanatosonic dimension of sound. And here's a doctor from Gaza describing the effects of the booms on her and her daughter. My daughter is restless, panicked, and afraid to go out, yet frustrated because she cannot see her friends. When Israeli fighter planes fly by day and night, the sound is terrifying. My daughter usually jumps into bed with me, shivering with fear. Then both of us end up crouching on the floor. My heart races, yet I try to pacify my daughter to make her feel safe. But then the boom sound, I flinch and scream. My daughter feels my fear and knows that we need to pacify each other. I'm a doctor and a mature middle-aged woman, but with sonic booming, I become hysterical. So again, you know, we're talking about sound as a form of energy that has both profound physiological and psychological effects on the contemporary battlefield. But probably the most remarked upon um, frontier of contemporary sonic warfare, actually, at least in the Western media, um, has been, and, and this is partly as a result of, um, it's worth pointing out, activism on the parts of journalists, musicologists, musicians, academics. But in, in any case, it's been the, the torture chamber. Right? And in particular, those in Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, and you know, other US-led um, dark prisons, and etc., in the context of enhanced interrogation. But again, just to sort of turn back to history for a moment before we return to these kind of contemporary torture practices, um, it's important to note, I think, that the use of music in torture is uh, not especially novel. Uh, so, for example, the musicologist um, Morag Grant points out that forced singing um, so this is the practice of getting prisoners to march for you know, hours on end, singing songs um, for fear of being beaten. That This practice has a really long pedigree. Um, and the technique is used because it's physically draining, because it's psychologically humiliating, but also because I think of the way in which um, that's kind of an insight into the importance of voice in relation to agency. So the prisoner's vocal agency is being really undermined here. And if you think about it, the to force someone to sing is a, a pretty sinister thing to do, actually, because and I think it has something to do with this close association that we, we, we tend to make between voice and agency and even subjectivity itself, because uh, I think uh, we can all identify with the fact that vocalization can sometimes feel like um, a particularly intimate form of expression. Right? So to have it usurped in this way, to be forced to sing, to, to, to give voice to somebody else's words, somebody else's melodies, um, you know, is a kind of a peculiarly awful form of violence. And we could connect um, contemporary practices of music torture to um, enforced playing as well in Nazi camps like Auschwitz. Um, so Shirley G Gilbert notes that many prisoners experienced it as being extraordinarily debasing to be, you know, forced to play something in these orchestras that the Nazis insisted on. Something as, you know, profoundly human as Beethoven in these profoundly dehumanizing and debasing contexts. And if we were going to draw an even longer bow, we could connect um, contemporary practices even further back to torture instruments like the so-called flute of shame and also um, the violin of shame, which were 
quite widely used in the Middle Ages and drew on um, quite a kind of a complex and weird, and from the contemporary perspective, cultural semiotics in relation to music and um, its kind of cultural status at the time. So anyway, so the point is that the music torture doesn't really, doesn't arrive with the war on terror. It uh, achieves a certain kind of new notoriety with it, um, but it, it doesn't, it's not, uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere. So how has uh, music torture been practiced in the contemporary situation? Um, I'm just gonna preface this by saying I'm not gonna play any samples. <laughs> Barney was uh, being used famously uh, to torture people and when examples like this get talked about, it's often with this kind of flippant air, right? Um, that tends to kind of minimize the violence here. And I'm concerned that if I was to play um, extracts of some of these songs with out of context that this um, would tend to minimize the real violence that's being done. So here we have you know, some really dang annoying songs that could just as easily have been used. This is meant to be amusing in some way. And I think that's part of the reason that music torture has been so effective as a technique of torture, because it doesn't feel so violent. So I'm not gonna play any examples. I'm gonna take a couple of examples from the work of a musicologist called Suzanne Cusack, uh, Cusick, sorry, who's done, I think, the best research on this topic. She interviewed one Algerian aid worker called Laid uh, Saidi, who was arrested. He was taken to an unknown US dark prison. He was blindfolded, fitted with an anal plug. He was shackled, and he was subjected to um, what he referred to as deafening Western music for hours on end in the dark. I'm going to come back to him in a minute. But eight other detainees recently told Human Rights Watch that they had been chained uh, to walls, they'd been deprived of food and, and drinking water, and they'd been kept in total darkness, just like Laid Saidi, and subjected to a loud rap and heavy metal for literally weeks at a time in some instances. Another person interviewed by Kusik talks about being handcuffed and having earphones put on his head. Um, they played hip hop and rock music very loud, he says. I remember they played Meatloaf and Aerosmith over and over. A couple of days later, they did the same thing, same music. This is from another ex-detainee. I actually can't remember a single day in which I wasn't subjected to music. From myself, the nearest speakers was approximately 20 yards. The music was very loud. And just to be clear, there's no real doubt about the veracity of these kinds of claims. That's, they've been corroborated by many former guards, interrogators, and um, other people involved in the process. And it's generally accepted, in fact, that these techniques were developed originally by psychologists in Canada, the US, and the UK in the 1950s, and then subsequently codified um, in the 60s by the CIA in a notorious manual um, known as Kubark. And in Kubark, this, these kinds of practices are referred to as um, futility music. So what is futility music, and how is it presumed to work? Well, the first thing to say in this respect is that, that this is, sound is being used here in a different way to on the battlefield in some respects, because I don't know of any examples of um, music torture yielding hearing loss here, right? So that's because the music torture is using sound, um, it's, it's aiming sound at the, at the mind rather than the body, right? So for music torture, merely loud is loud enough. The music doesn't need to be deafening um, because the point of the practice is um, this kind of profound sense of subjection and dislocation from time and place. It's not about damaging your ears. It's about producing these other effects. So one of um, 
Sadie's, uh, Sadie's interrogators put it to him like this as he was being blasted by sound. You are in a place that is out of the world. No one knows where you are. No one is going to defend you. You can see how, right? Because bombarded constantly with music at high volume, you're, you're not an able to participate in um, or experience your immediate soundscape, right? Your acoustic agency is being radically compromised. You can't hear ambient environmental sounds that would allow you to locate yourself. You can't hear evidence of other life at all, really, um, whether that be from prison guards or other prisoners. Um, you're not able to talk to them um, above the noise. You can't even hear yourself as you move through space, move through your cell, you can't really talk to yourself. Um, according to some reports, it becomes increasingly difficult with time to even kind of hear your, yourself think, right? Your kind of internal voice. And that's precisely the point, right? That's, that's exactly what this whole thing is about. As one detainee put it, um, this inability to distract yourself with your own thoughts makes you feel like, makes you feel like you're going mad. According to another detainee, at first the music was just annoying, then it became something else. I realized it was a war of wills, a personal attack against me. They were trying to harm me. And, and the CIA is extremely explicit about this. So here is a quotation from Kubark, for example. There is an interval um, which may be extremely brief of suspended animation, of psychological shock or paralysis. It is caused by a traumatic or subtraumatic experience which explodes, as it were, the world that is familiar to the subject as well as the image of himself within the world. So music is being deployed here in order to produce an experience of kind of radical exceptionality, right, to, um, of placelessness, and, and therefore also I think of lawlessness, of this kind of total subjection to the whims of the institution in which you found yourself, even to the point of not even being able to determine the nature and extent of your sensorial engagement with the world. So, you know, I think Saidi's interrogator had it right. You're in a place that is out of the world. I think that's what this is. This practice is being is, is aiming at. Um, I just want to say a couple of other things about uh, music torture before I move on to talk about the city. First, playlisting, and then technology. Because as 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 far as playlists are concerned, um, it's kind of intriguing. Because on one level, the particular tracks, the particular music that's being selected, doesn't really matter. So it doesn't matter whether it's really it's Aerosmith or. Um, Barney the Dinosaur or metal or rock or hip hop, just playing anything loud enough for long enough will do, right? Um, even sensory deprivation um, can, can, can do just as well. But I think it's important and interesting that the music being used here is invariably described as Western, right? You know, and whether this is by accident or by design, whether it's just you know, a coincidence that this is the music the soldiers are bringing along with them on their iPods doesn't really matter on, in a way because the, the music's cultural associations in the context of a global war on terror, global war on terror, which really means Islamic terror, um, in that context, the indexicality of this music as Western to a normally non-Western listener, I think, is doing something quite important in this process. So you know, whether it's Aerosmith, Eminem, or Britney Spears, this is music that stands, I think, for, you know, whatever, atheism, and the violences of the free market. You know, it might be experienced as sacrilegious or vacuous or you know, spiritually empty or whatever. The, the music is drawing on these associations. So there's kind of an intriguing soundscape that's being produced instead of listening practices being produced because on the one hand, it's not really about listening at all. It's about exposure. It's about subjection by sound 
dislocation from time and space through sound, the materiality of the sound. But on the other hand, there is clearly a hermeneutic moment. Right? This is a form of listening that's being encouraged. So in a way, maybe Saidi's interrogator shouldn't have said you're in a place that's out of the world, but that you're, you're now in our world. You're in a place that's out of your world. You know, you're, you're, you're with us now. Right? And, and this is being reinforced every second of the exposure um, to this kind of thoroughly Western playlist. And actually, you know, the word, I use the, the, the word playlist quite deliberately because it's clear that the music is entering um, these torture chambers by means of technologies and listening and practices associated with the MP3 player and the, uh, and the iPod. So as a technology, I think, um, you know, the iPod makes this kind of torture practice extremely easy. I don't want to say cause and effect, but it certainly helps, right? Because even though it's true that um, the kind of techniques that are being used on detainees were developed in the 60s, they're a hell of a lot easier to put into practice um, when you have a playlist and um, you know, a repeat function, right? Um, it's a lot easier to torture somebody musically with an iPod than with vinyl or tape. And it's not just the, 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 the technologies either, but the, you know, the kind, the, these kinds of practices become easier to imagine right, um, as well when music is already the permanent backdrop to your everyday life. Right? So the, the logic of the soundscape in the torture chamber has more, I think, in common with the, the soundscape of the shopping mall you know, and the airport um, than we, you know, what we like to think. Because, yeah, so, so the point is just that um, the, as a technology and as a set of listening practices associated with the technology, the iPod um, is extremely easy to militarize, right? And we know from Kittler that the entertainment industry is, um, is an abuse of army equipment, but I think the same is um, true the other way as well, right? Because whether it's Bose or Apple or whoever, it's the same companies that are producing civilian technologies that are, are being direct, directly implicated in the field of sonic warfare too, right? So there's a movement from the city out to the battlefield, back again. And so that brings me to the city and to the, the, the militarization of sound in civilian contexts. This is not controversial, but um, Stephen Graham puts it really nicely. He talks about the fact that um, he's a geographer, that not only are our battlefields increasingly becoming urban, but our cities are also increasingly becoming battlefields. Right? And this is no less true in relation to sound and its weaponization. And maybe the, the easiest example, or the most obvious example in this respect, is the LRAD, um, which you may have heard of, or the long-range acoustic device, which, you know, in addition to just being a, a way of amplifying your voice, just like this microphone, um, offers a range of um, what the LRAD Corporation calls uh, non-lethal deterrent options, including a warning tone, which is like a siren, basically, we're going to hear in a minute, that can go as high in some models as 162 decibels, which is, depending on how you measure it, around about... 20 to 30, maybe even more uh, decibels above the threshold of ear pain and can easily um, lead to hearing loss, tissue damage, potentially eardrum rupture, depending on precisely the frequency of the, the siren and how close you are to the device. And so the device is used, um, you know, whether or not you're injured, um, to try to get you to flee, right? So it's intended as, uh, to fill this critical gap between initial engagement and the escalation of force. Um, it's intended to force you to leave the area through sound because of the pain of the siren that's um, being produced. The LRAD was originally invented by the US Navy, where it's still used regularly, um, but it found its way quickly into Iraq 
and is increasingly being used in the context of domestic policing. So um, the city of Brisbane owns an LRAD, which they bought um, a couple of years ago for the G, was it G20 or G8 that was here? G20. So they bought one for that. And um, it was used, an LRAD was used on the streets of Ferguson in the aftermath of the killing of um, Mike Brown. It used again on the streets of New York to disperse protests in the context of protests around the p police killing of Eric Garner. Um, but it was used for the first time in, in 2009 in another, um, in, in, sorry, in the US, um, uh, another G20 in Pittsburgh. I'm just going to show you some footage of this uh, moment. And I warn you that this is very loud, and I'm playing it loud deliberately um, because I want to give some sense at least of, of how violent this is. Okay. The idea is that as the as the the LRAD and the police line behind it advance through space, they kind of clear the air and they can force protests, kind of like acoustic kettling or something, force protesters into different spaces. So the idea, so really, sound is being used here for its biopolitical um, sort of capacities. The, what we have here is, is a biopolitics really of frequency and amplitude, and it's being used to work indiscriminately on both individual and social. Bodies. It's exploiting the peculiar sensitivity of the human ear to mid to high pitch frequencies played at high volumes. And this is apparently much more effective than using um, ultrasonic frequency or infrasonic frequencies, just very low bass sounds, for example, as Juliet Volkler points out in this excellent book, which I, which I really recommend. So the LRAD uses um, mid to high pitch frequencies that are within the range of the human audition um, in urban policing to disperse protesters. Another device that is increasingly finding its way into our cities, the mosquito, um, exploits another dimension of human audition, um, which you, you may know has been um, explored in the art world by people like um, Ryoji Akita. And so how does the mosquito use the human body? Um, well, it exploits two physiological facts. So first of all, the fact that the range of human audition is limit quite limited, like to quite a narrow band of frequencies. Some people, you, know, you just can't hear above a certain frequency. And second, the fact that our hearing fades dramatically with age. Whereas the LRAD is used to disperse crowds in space, the mosquito is used to to, to um, encourage loitering youth, basically, um, in a similar kind of way to music is sometimes being used at train stations and malls and things to, to encourage them to leave space. So it's also a logic of dispersal. Sound is being used in relation to dispersal. And, and here's how it works. Joel, could you um, help me out with this? So the idea is that if you, um, you, you can basically aim it at people, at people by age group, right? So if, um, if you wanted to... Um, start with um, a sound that everybody could hear. Right, so this is going to encourage most people if it's played long enough and loud enough to leave a space. Um, but if you just want to get aim at 60-year-olds and younger, this one, 49-year-olds and younger, and obviously this is a rough estimate. We're going to, you know, work out the age of the, the acoustic age of people in the room here. Um, 39 years and younger, 
maybe some people are dropping out now. <laughs> uh, 30. And 24. So, um, so the, 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 the Mosquito Corporation is you know, very explicit about politics of this. It says um, the new Mosquito MK4 multi-age now has two functions. Either you set it to, um, to 17 kilohertz to disperse groups of troublesome teenagers, right? Or you can set it to 8 kilohertz to disperse people of any age from areas where loitering. And, and so what that means is homeless people, right? What, the, the, that's the target population uh, here. So the, like the LRAD, this is a technology that's being aimed directly at the body, right? That's, that, that's how it's working. Um, but intriguingly, the Mosquito Corporation also knows that the, the mind is worth um, targeting as well because they also offer what they call the Music Mosquito, which instead of using these very high-pitched tones, uses um, royalty-free classical or chill-out music that it's imagined that teenagers are going to find really uncool and they're not going to want to hang around near. So on one level, the, the, the proper Mosquito with the ultrasonic frequency is, very, is really indiscriminate, just you know, aimed at anyone. But actually... So is this, right? Because, you know, what happens if I also happen to find royalty-free, chill-out music really repulsive, right? And I'm not going to want to um, stick around, even if I'm not the target audience. Um, the converse is also true, right? So what if um, teenagers, the target group, you know, learn to love Bach and they strategically appropriate or ironize this kind of use of the mosquito, then the manufacturers are going to have to move on to different genres. And you can imagine this kind of recursive cycle. And so what's going on here, I think, is basically um, it's not so much a biopolitics of frequency anymore. It's just a politics of genre. And again, I, I think it's worth pointing out that there's nothing particularly new um, about this. In, in, in a way, this is a logic we're extremely comfortable with um, because this is precisely the same logic that's being deployed all the time in our cafes and shopping malls and art galleries and our homes, right? We're, we're, we're using sound, using genre to uh, you know, encourage people to spend or to relax or to either way to kind of congregate in certain ways. So the point is the same logic is being used in kind of city context regularly to encourage congregation that's being used by you know, the Mosquito Corporation here to encourage dispersal. And actually, there's a, there's a strong link here with um, you know, the use of Western playlists right, in torture chambers too. So in, in all of these cases, whether it's the you know, outside a mall with the music mosquito or the music torture and torture chamber or cafes, malls, whatever, the sonic environment is being manipulated um, for the purpose of producing certain kinds of physical effects and cultural resonances. And so there's a, there's a set of connections, I think, in the listening practices technologies that, that draw us all the way from the battlefield through to the torture chamber and to the cities and streets and galleries such as this one. Um, these three fields, in other words, are connected. So... They're connected, and there are certain ways in which they're, you know, uh, important differences as well. But, um, you know, we're quite near the end of the presentation now, and I haven't actually mentioned um, law very much at all. Um, so isn't it time I did that? So what has law got to do with all of this? Well, um, lots of things. But the first thing to say is that, you know, there's a huge diversity of legal instruments and jurisdictions and institutions potentially in play here, both internationally and domestically. And this is not an easy field to navigate. Um, so when it comes to the battlefield, for example, we're talking about a huge range of 
customs, treaties, courts, tribunals that together make up the, the, the field of the, the law of war, international humanitarian law. Um, we're talking about the Geneva Conventions. We're talking about ad hoc tribunals like the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and former Yugoslavia and now the permanent court, the ICC. We could think about the way in which human rights norms are being engaged here, you know, the Universal Declaration or the um, International Covenant on the Protection of Civil and Political Rights. And all of these two are relevant to the torture chamber, as is the, the torture-specific convention against torture. Uh, and there's a whole range of domestic provisions in be being engaged here too, the whole range of um, domestic institutions prohibiting torture, whether on human rights grounds or otherwise. And intriguingly, um, do you, anyone know the, the Canadian um, band Skinny Puppy? Yes? No? Anyone? Um, so they uh, pose another intriguing possibility. They attempted to sue a few years ago the US government for copyright infringement in relation to the use of their music in, in Guantanamo, which a guard alerted them to. And I think it's fascinating to speculate about. I feel like. Uh, it's easier maybe to imagine a copyright claim getting up against the US government than um, one for breach of the Convention Against Torture, frankly. And that's kind of intriguing. In relation to the city, you know, again, there's all this kind of range of um, human rights norms. Um, we could think about the role of domestic criminal law in relation to assault and battery in relation to something like the LRAD, um, laws in relation to the freedom of movement and unlawful detention. There was a Canadian case in Toronto where somebody brought uh, charter claims in relation to um, uh, having their freedom of movement infringed. We could think of something like the LRAD as being a problem of media law too, um, because the LRAD Corporation has been very successful successful at getting the, the, the LRAD declared a media device, right, rather than a weapon. And this has quite important consequences because it allows it to escape global restrictions on the trade of arms. So again, media law here too. We could also think of the way in which the mosquito engages human rights norms and um, questions of um, private property, public space, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's this so, I mean, the point isn't just to list all of these um, norms and institutions, but to say that, you know, we have this field of sonic warfare that seems to kind of hold together on a conceptual level on one level uh, in, in a way. But from a legal perspective, there's this enormous diversity of ways of apprehending it. And I just want to make a few points about that. So the first one is to do with law's potential as an instrument of prohibition, because you know, the first question that you always get asked as a legal academic is, you know, what are you going to do? Why, why so much law and so little action? Why has law been so toothless in relation to this kind of thing? You know, why not ban this stuff? If it's so bad, why don't we just ban it? And, you know, that's a good question on one level, um, except that insofar as law is an instrument of prohibition, um, obviously it requires people to, and institutions to wield that instrument, right? And when they do, the sorts of issues that we've been talking about tonight, um, this afternoon, are only gonna be prosecuted to the extent that they figure in our legal imaginations, right? In our collective sonic imagination. And as I've, you know, as I've been saying, that you know, law's sonic imagination is pretty impoverished, actually. Legal thinkers, legal practitioners are pretty bad at thinking about sound, taking sound seriously. Um, they failed to apprehend what Daughtry calls the Thanato Sonic. But actually, this is not really that surprising, I think, because law is hardly alone in this respect. Um, law's, fa law's failure is, is society's failure. It's a symptom of a broader discursive failure in which we're all implicated. I think that sound and music tend to figure still to this day as kind of 
um, insubstantial in, um, in academic and public discourse, right? That we struggle still to think about sound and music as being fully tangible, as being equally capable of being a force as, as well as a pleasure. And I think that, you know, it, I don't think it's going too far to suggest that this has something to do with the association that, we, that we, we've made throughout history in the West between music and the transcendent. This is Mozart's Dies Irae, which you'll know. So one reason why the weaponization of sound and music um, hasn't been a live issue in legal discourse is because legal discourse is partly symptomatic of this kind of broader failure to apprehend the ambivalence of sound, right? It's violence as much as it's value. And this is a problem that we're all implicated in. But let's say, let's say that you know, all lawyers read my book and they all learn that you know, sound is important in law. Um, what do we do then? Um, now we have another uh, problem entirely, right? How, how is it that law should apprehend sound? Because, you know, isn't sound a peculiarly slippery kind of an object, right? Isn't this precisely one of the things that makes it such an ideal mechanism of, of power and of violence? Isn't it precisely because there's no such thing as silence that sound is so easy to weaponize, actually? Isn't it precisely because the difference between music and music torture is so kind of incredibly slim, but at the same time so real that sonic warfare is so hard to regulate? If we ban, you know, sonic booms um, for their, you know, um, their kind of physiological impacts, well, don't we need to also ban flyovers in general or drones or gunfire as well for their psychological impacts? Um, if the line between, you know, ambience and assault is effectively imperceptible, a matter of perspective, how are we meant to draw that line, right? Um, because we know that um, metrics like um, decibels, for example, are kind of particularly awful at measuring, um, at dealing with the problem. Uh, they're just completely inadequate of dealing with the problem of noise. So I guess what I'm suggesting then is that sound might be peculiarly kind of well-suited to avoiding legal prohibition, right? And that actually might be one reason why it's used so frequently. And there's another dimension to this problem of law's apprehension of sound, um, because you know, what does it mean that when the United States used sonic booms over Nicaragua, and this came up um, before the ICC in 86, that these, these sonic booms were understood as airspace violations, right? As infringements of Nicaragua's territorial sovereignty under customary international law to be technical. Well, you know, what does it mean that um, when, when a band like Skinny Puppy attempts to prosecute this kind of practice of music torture in the language of copyright infringement, are, are these failures? of law's sonic imagination? Is this an example of a mishearing, right, of these legal institutions? You know, a failure to adequately apprehend and capture the, the violence that's being done here in the language of law? You know, wouldn't, should we say that this should have all been dealt with in the language of human rights or the you know, humanitarian law or whatever, um, you know, the law of torture? Or is something interesting going on here? Are these examples of the creative use or critical appropriation of legal language and institutions and discourse? Isn't Skinny Puppy's kind of intervention by using the language of copyright doing something quite interesting and important politically, but both on the one hand by raising the issue of music in detention and also by pointing to kind of the real grotesqueness and absurdity of imagining like a royalties system or something in relation to music torture. Kind of. And so I think this, that's kind of an intriguing possibility. This is an important intervention on one level, this kind of misuse of law in a certain kind of way. So I don't think it's clear cut, in other words, that, uh, that we can simply say that law is mishearing, 
right? That the, the, this kind of use of legal institutions and legal discourse is doing something more than just prohibiting. There's a kind of a generative or a translation effect or a funneling effect that's, that's happening as well here too. And so this is um, my final point. I think it's a mistake to focus too much on the question of prohibition when it comes to sonic warfare, right? Always to be banging on this question, can we ban it? That's not the only political horizon here because we should notice too the way in which legal institutions have actively enabled and facilitated these kinds of practices rather than just coming in as kind of this you know, noble knight to um, smack them down. That we, we need to think about the productive and facilitative dimension of law, um, and, and this hasn't really been done. So to give you a really um, a clear example in relation to music torture of what I mean by this, so Darius Rajali um, makes a really important distinction um, between what he calls scarring and non-scarring forms of torture. So what he claims in this book is that Despite all of this kind of rhetoric of human rights and, you know, the Convention Against Torture and the arrival of this kind of supposedly enlightened democratic era and the birth of liberal democracy and blah, 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 we haven't actually seen a reduction in the use of torture at all. Um, what we've seen is a change in the techniques of torture, right? And that change is a move away from scarring techniques towards non-scarring techniques. And you know, music torture being a really great example of this. And why would we move away from scarring techniques to non-scarring techniques? Because they're much more palatable to the public, because they leave less physical evidence of the harm that they're doing on the tortured subject, right? even if that harm is just as bad or maybe even worse, psychologically speaking. So the move from scarring to non-scarring, you know, physical to music torture is um, about escaping legal institutions on one level. And we could say the same, something similar about um, devices like the LRAD and the Mosquito, right? That they're, they're used partly because they're so much more palatable, right, than truncheons and bullets. And so this, this discourse of non-lethality that's emerged, um, particularly in relation to policing, has been kind of quite effective in convincing us that our military and police forces are somehow more humane, you know, they... they, 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 they they, um, they're human rights friendly, right? Um, at the same time as police and militaries have more power than they have ever had before, right? So human rights norms, um, legal institutions are implicating the production of these new techniques of power in addition to just being ways of prohibiting them. So the, what I'm trying to say is that the, the story of sonic warfare is not just a story about technological advancement that law can somehow keep at bay, it's also a law story. The rise of democratic institutions and rule of law and um, you know, human rights instruments are actually producing, they're implicated in the production of these kinds of practices as well as um, um, you know, being used as uh, techniques for prohibiting them. So in other words, we could say kind of polemically that law produces music torture in a certain kind of way. Law produces the LRAD as well. And you know, moreover, law is going to keep on producing different kinds of weapons, different techniques, and different forms of violence, acoustic or otherwise, and we need to pay attention to that. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Warung and Warung people of the Kulin Nation. 
We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au